オーディションやろ息子に言われたんです最近勝負遅れてるんで再婚でもしたがって Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is my co host, Jason. Jason, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you?、Uh, fine as well.、Uh, so, today we initially planned, and I'm not sure if I made this announcement on the previous episode or if I just removed it before uploading, but we had originally decided to cover uh, uh, Ang Lee's Eat, Drink, Men, Woman. But because、uh, by the time this episode is released, it's going to be so close to Halloween, we、um, kind of in the middle of, of preparation, we made a change and decided to cover a, a horror. Film instead, and、uh, the one we chose was、uh, Takashi Miike's 1999 film Audition. That's a classic, and we were going to get right to it sooner or later, so、uh, it's perfect for Halloween. Yeah, exactly. It, it will be, it will be a, a, a missed opportunity not to do something like this for Halloween. However, before we get to our episode discussion, as usually, we'll do the part of our episode where we Kind of talk about our weeks. What have we been watching, playing, reading, or whatever else we want to talk about? So, why don't you go first, Jason, and tell us what, what's made you happy in the last couple of weeks, to put it in one way?、Uh, well, I was happy that I finally finished Bonfire of the Vanities.、Uh, Tom Wolfe had pretensions of being like a modern day Dickens and capturing、um, like different slices of New York life from rich to poor. And I felt he did a Really bad job of capturing working class minority characters, and that really bugged me throughout the entire book. And、um, I felt like he was much more comfortable with、uh, officialdom and the rich. That was much more convincing.、Uh, the ending was really disappointing. It just seemed like a, a mess. So I was happy to put that away. And、um, I started reading a book about Vincent van Gogh. So it shows images and of his paintings and also letters to his brother Theo. And、um, uh, reading his words and looking at his paintings,、uh, just really moving stuff, especially because he lived such a hard life pursuing art. And he actually never sold a painting in his lifetime. Oh, I, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I knew about his,、uh, the hardships that he went through, but I didn't, I didn't actually know, I wasn't aware of the fact that he never actually sold a painting. Yeah, I think、uh, Theo was probably the only person who、um, actually、uh, had one of his paintings.、Uh, you know, if 
that so uh yeah it's just i felt like getting really close up with the um images shows the genius at work how his brush strokes and the textures uh can evoke certain emotions uh, sorry to to backtrack a little bit, but just to getting, uh, I I had a question about Bonfire of the Vanities when you said it didn't represent. Obviously, I haven't read the film, um, the the book, uh, but um, when you said it, you didn't think it depicted the lower classes very well. Did you get the impression that it was because maybe the author was not was too distant from that world, maybe that he never experienced that world? What what did you think the problem was exactly? Yeah, he does not humanize the characters whatsoever. So he will go into backgrounds and like the history of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. He's very comfortable talking about racial dynamics up there, but he has no interest in the black characters, how New York um, was a city where during the 70s, sort of like the economic tax base uh, flatlined because everybody went out to the suburbs and people in the inner cities... Um, Latinos and blacks were left in really horrible conditions. The um, sort of uh, housing crisis where um, landlords uh, were renting out uh, substandard homes and black people were forced into certain sections of the city where uh, um, like they were really bad for health. And like, um, I, d I, like, I don't know what the American term is, like freeways or highways, they were um, put through communities. Uh, the film, the um, uh, Norton film, uh, Ed Norton, the actor, he's in Motherless Brooklyn, and that deals with some of those subjects. But uh, yeah, Tom Wolfe, I think he's from North Carolina, and he has a sort of um, distant view, perhaps maybe prejudiced, and so he, he does not um, portray the working class characters with much humanity they remain a mob and animalistic to the end and i felt like uh he was much better at portraying the police the view of the police and the prosecutors like he was sat in the back of a police car and they were filling him in on their own views of the communities and then he used those views to inform the reader in the book about what life is like for working class people in new york yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I've noticed that pattern of the outsider trying to peek in and often it's it's a, a failure. And I'm not, uh, you know, there's, if you've ever read about writing or took a writing class, they always tell you to write what you know. And I'm, I'm not generally a, a fan of that. I think writers should should be feel free to explore whatever they, uh, they want as long as they do the research for it. But I have found that sometimes it's just very hard for outsiders to... To really get inside a certain certain circles and portray their uh, their you know issues in in a very relatable and and realistic way, it takes it takes someone with a lot of talent to do that. For example, to give another to give an example of what I consider to be a failure was, uh, I don't know if you saw the film that came out a couple of years ago called uh, Three Bol Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes, yes, um, Woody Harrelson. Ah, uh, Francis McDormand. Yeah, what was the name of the director? And he was also the writer. Uh, is it Martin McDonough? He did Seven Psychopaths. Yes, and he also did In, In Bruges, which is an excellent film. And even Three uh, Three Billboards Outside Abing, Missouri. Is, it was a very, from an objective point of view, it was a very, very well-written uh, story with uh, compelling characters and um, a compelling story and all that. 
uh, and the acting was fine as well. But as a look in uh, into the American South, it was so off the base. It was a, a totally unrealistic portrayal of what you know Americans from that region would be and what their struggles would be. Even just the way they talked was so so strange. It took you out of it. And someone who's lived in the in the American Midwest actually, because Missouri is not exactly the South; it's more of a Midwest. And I spent a lot of years living in the Midwest. That's what I actually went to school. And uh, okay. and it's 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 a it was a completely false representation of what the area is like. As good as the film was, you know, as a as a from from a more objective standpoint. So so I kind of I kind of I, I understand. I sort of sympathize with with your uh, feelings for uh, regarding Tom Wolfe's book. Yeah, um, he he tried to be a modern day Dickens, and the difference between him and well, I don't know too much about Tom Wolfe's background, but Dickens actually experienced poverty in london he actually he was in a workhouse due to his father's debts and so there's a lot more sympathy for characters at the bottom of society in dickens works they often end up being char- uh, the main protagonists in a lot of his novels absolutely uh, but anyway sorry to to diverge you from uh, uh, your list <laughs> you may you may continue if you want to no it's like the saga is over i finished that book <laughs> okay um so yeah i've watched uh because we're getting closer to Halloween, I've been watching lots of um, horror movies. I watched an Italian zombie movie called After Death, and uh, this weird monster movie by, uh, I think his name is Brian Yusner, called Society, which is, um, uh, the tagline is, the rich uh, feed off the poor. And um, you expect these weird uh, monsters that actually uh, make up the upper echelons of society and how they actually do literally feed off the poor and um spellcaster which is from 1988 which stars adamant as like um lord diablo uh who's got this castle where a reality tv uh, show is being filmed and these teenagers and a rock star are looking for a check of like uh a million dollars and he's bumping them off one by one and um i took advantage of the hirobumi watanabe films being uh shown for free by the Smithsonian uh, for a limited time, so I watched three of his films uh, online. Uh, so yeah, um, yeah. If you, if people listening uh, follow the Heroic Purgatory Twitter feed, I'll try and tweet out um, links to different festivals or events that are screening films online. Um, sometimes they're for free. Sometimes you have to pay a little fee. For example, we've got the Kyoto International Film Festival. They're screening a number of works by. Uh, uh, Nobuhiko Bayashi, lots of um, silent films uh, and a variety of shorts. They're all available globally, as far as I can tell, and um, they only cost uh, a few euros. And uh, yeah, if you just follow the Heroic Purgatory uh, Twitter feed, you you can find it more. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's great. And like I, when we talked about festivals a few episodes ago, I said how much I am enjoying the fact that a lot of them are online now, and even. And that's great because even the ones that you pay for, you get to watch pretty, you know, recent new movies mostly, and you pay less than what you would have paid in in movie theaters, at least where I live. Um, and so that's 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 really great. Even the ones that you have to pay for, they, they it's a great deal to to catch some new movies for, uh, like Japan time. I mean, Japan cuts was seven bucks a movie, which is much less than what you would pay in, in theaters, and these movies wouldn't even go to theaters in the first place. 
Yeah, I uh, yeah, like the films being screened at Kyoto uh, are like three euros, so I think that's around even the less. same price. Yeah, okay. So yeah, obviously, um, it, it presents a great opportunity for people around the world, and if they if people view these films in uh, higher numbers, then it encourages festivals to continue in this practice, which opens up um, all of these films that usually just tend to stay on the festival circuit to a much wider audience. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so uh, regarding what I've done, uh, I've, I'm finally, my work is finally starting to let down so I can get back to my, to my routine. And that's great. So I did, I did uh, end up watching quite a bit and, and doing quite a bit of what I wanted to these couple of weeks. Um, some notable ones, I watched uh, a, a really fun a cheesy '80s science fiction movie called Cherry Two Thousand. I don't know if you've even heard of it. No, I mean it's it's not a great film by any means, but it was fun. It's about um, uh, it's about a post-apocalyptic uh, world, uh, or at least USA, where um, um, almost all sexual relations between men and women are don't happen for some reason, and and people have these sex dolls that. Uh, uh, that they do, that they just oh. uh, engage in relationships with, and okay. uh, it's it, the story is about one uh, person's quite rare sex doll uh, breaks. So he's on a quest to the uh, a quite Mad Maxian almost quest to to go to the abandoned regions of uh, Western United States and try to find a replacement for this very rare doll that he that he misses. Uh, <laughs> And it's actually the doll is called Cherry Two Thousand. It's a Cherry Two Thousand models, and and apparently they're not made anymore. Uh, yeah, and that's that's essentially the film. Of course, in the way he uh, teams up with a real woman who initially helps him in his quest, but eventually he falls in love with her and realizes that sex with a real woman is better than sex with a doll. I guess that's the message of the film. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I said, it's it's a very typical cheesy science fiction action film from the 80s but it is it, it has its fun moments and i like the action in it quite a bit but yeah there must be a whole genre of um sort of dolls uh in movies like air doll by hirokazu koreeda romance doll uh the film that's on netflix uh, uh yeah can you think of any more no but but uh when it comes i'm i'm a big fan of these terrible either either terrible films from the 50s or terrible films from the 80s for some reason those two decades were were great at producing this this uh this films and i think there's like you know there's just these tipping points in in you know in film technology where you know they haven't quite gotten to the sophistication of the 90s and the 2000s but they're they have these um like the ambitions that kind of would mm. eventually lead there and they're not great in retrospect but they 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 contain a lot of creativity that are worth looking back into uh sometimes to the detriment of a good story yeah have you have you seen terror terror vision i don't think so terror vision takes place in the future in this s- suburban america where um this family uh sort of a nuclear family parents son and daughter and grandfather they have a satellite dish which is the conduit through which an alien beams into the family home uh, the parents are swingers and the uh, the daughter is a teenage tearaway into rock music and the son's like uh, military obsessed and um, it's full of 80s kish i i'd say it's a pretty bad movie but uh you might find that fun 
Oh, I, I would. And just looking at it, uh, it looks like something that I would enjoy. I might actually watch it this week sometimes. I do. Uh, what I've been doing is I've been uh, taking advantage. I don't think it's quite available in, outside the U.S. yet, but in the in, outside the U.S., but inside the U.S., uh, services like Amazon Prime and Hulu have this watch party uh, mm. feature. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. You, where you can uh, essentially watch the same content with a friend who also has an Amazon Prime account at, at the ah. same time. And you also have a chat window. So, you know, the video syncs. So you're watching a film or an episode of TV as long as it's available on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, and you get to chat about it and, and kind of try to emulate the, you know, viewing the same thing at the same time, except not in the same place. It's the closest any of us will get to being a cinema again. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of I've been doing that with a couple of friends where we watch these this movie. So I might do that with uh, this Terror Vision that you recommended. Okay. Uh, I also watched another Amazon Prime series called Upload. About uh, it's it's sort of a comedy drama. It was okay. I didn't. I wasn't that impressed with it, but I enjoyed while while I watched. I watched the first season of that. It's about it's again a, a science fiction series in the near future where when people die they have the choice to upload their memories into this virtual world instead of actually die for real mm. and it's about this one guy who dies prematurely and he's and is has to kind of get used to this world and there's other story things that go on it and it's 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 i think it's it's i recommend i would recommend checking it out but i don't know uh maybe it's it it still needs to grow a little bit okay uh and just like you i've kind of i've try to pay my respects to the October month and the um, the month of horror as it's been called and the proximity of Halloween and, and try to uh, dip my feet especially in a lot of classic horror films and maybe not so classic ones mm -hmm. uh, for, for instance I watched the 1931 Frankenstein and the 1931 Dracula films uh, I definitely think Frankenstein was the better of the two yeah it's uh, Boris Karloff yeah um, one thing, of course, the film has a lot of qualities, which I'm, they have been talked to by a lot of people, written about by a lot of people, so I'm not going to go into that. But one thing that kind of uh, struck, and I, I had seen these films before, so it wasn't it wasn't the first time. Uh, but I, I, I like them. I enjoy them a lot. And one thing that kind of, that I miss that films don't do the, anymore, that I did it, that they did up to the 80s, is the use of painted backgrounds. Hmm. Like, I realize it doesn't look as realistic as CGI backgrounds, which is the standard now, but that's not, that was never the point. Uh, they have this quality about them that adds to the style of the film. And I just wish that filmmakers use them. Not, not, I realize that it will never get back to being the standard, but I wish there was films that use them as appropriate, like when, when it's appropriate to kind of create that mood that those matte paintings and, and uh, painted backgrounds generate in a film like this. Like, for example, in the original series of Star, Star Trek, they're used a lot, and I think they look beautiful, like for backgrounds of planets and whatnot. Another example is, you know, the Kisuke Kinoshida's version of The Ballad of Narayama, which was made in the 50s. Uh, mm. And that also uses painted background, and it's it's it looks it doesn't look realistic at all. But that's that's the point. It looks so so artificial, so so otherworldly that it that it enhances the atmosphere of that film. And I that's I love that film. The fifties version of the Ballad of Nariyama, in my opinion, is superior to the seventies version, which is a lot more realistic. Which I think Imamura made that one. I don't remember exactly who made the seventies version. I think yeah, Shohei Imamura. I think it was eighties. Is it the 80s? Yeah. 
uh, it was it was later, and it's a, a far more. Re- I'd have to double check. Yeah, it was a far more realistic depiction, and of course that has its merits too. I'm not trying to take it down, but that that, that I think the effect of those painted backdrops in a lot of you know, um, it's also used in. Um, I think uh, Nagisa Oshima used them in, in, in a couple of his films, like in Gohato, uh, the last film mm. that he made in 99. I think that also contains painted backdrops in some scenes. And I just, they have that effect that, that uh, like on almost ethereal, they give the uh, the scene an almost ethereal, uh, otherworldly sense that, that I just, I wish it was just still used. It wasn't made so obsolete as it, as it seems to be. Yeah. Um, the, um, Maybe I'm misremembering, but the one painted backdrop that's sprung to my mind is um, in Nobuhiko Obayashi's house, where I think yes. it's Kung, Kung Fu gets the uh, uh, bucket from the well, and there's a head in there, and it starts flying around, and it's a, a painted background of like a sunset. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, the Ballad of Nariyama's 1983. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Um... Uh, but yeah, just I just I don't know. Like out of you know all the qualities of the film, it just made me nostalgic for for that particular technique. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I also watched uh, Bad Taste, the first Peter Jackson film. Ah, what I did you know. think? Um, it was both brilliant and terrible at the same time. It's, <laughs> it's so cheesy, and the like. There's some really obvious. It was made for very cheap, obviously, and it was just Peter Jackson and his friends trying to make a film. Mm. Um, uh, but it was there was a good scene. There's it's also very body horrorish. Like there is a scene where some guy falls off a cliff and his head cracks open and a, a little bit of his brain spills out mm. and he takes it off the ground and puts it back in <laughs> and then he tries to tie it with his belt um, mm. and then he has another accident. The brain, uh, uh, the same piece of the brain falls out and uh, he accidentally steps on it so he can't put it back in. So he just grabs a piece of brain from an alien and uses that to fill in the gap in his head. Yeah, I, I'm just remembering the um, lawnmower scene at the very end. <laughs> yeah, so so I actually the final the final 20 minutes of that film are are really worth watching. They're really well made. Uh, yeah, and you can see you can see uh, an and like its subparts is cheesy on purpose, but you can see the talent of the director that would eventually show itself in later films. So um, yeah. Uh, and I also watched a a TV documentary series on Amazon Prime called "The Hundred Years of Horror" mm. by Christopher Lee, uh, narrated by Christopher Lee, and it's sort of it's a documentary kind of narrating the evolution of horror and the different horror types from from the inception of cinema to modern day. Well, the series was made in the '90s, so I guess up to the '90s. But it's it's very fun to watch, and it's okay. very informative too. Uh, it mostly, for some reason, it mostly, I guess, it has a, uh, it, it airs towards uh, low budget horror and it mostly old horror. So it rarely ventures into, you know, post 80s uh, era, but it, it still, it's, I've enjoyed it. I recommend uh, watching that, that um, it's free on Amazon Prime. So, um, and it's, it's fun to hear Christopher Lee talk about his experiences when he was making a lot of horrors in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Greetings, it is I, the Count, and it's time to answer that fascinating question. What is the Sesame Street number of the day? Uh, uh. Okay, so we also have uh, a few news items uh, that we'll try to, to go briefly, uh, as we've already spent enough time on, on non-edition related stuff. Park Chang-wook is directing his next film, 
which you know I'm I'm excited about. He's he's one of my favorite uh, filmmakers. I I I looked at this um uh, IndieWire article that I've linked here, and apparently it's a, a murder mystery that he just started shooting. So it's probably a 2021 or maybe even a 2022 release. Is it a mountain accident, like a wife suspected or something? Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, and you also had here something about a couple of festivals, right? Or a couple of releases, Jason? Yeah, Raindance Film Festival. By the time this uh, podcast goes live, it will uh, almost be over. There'll be a week to go, but it's gone virtual. And some content is available worldwide. And it appears all the films are free to view. But there is also an option to donate money to the festival if you want to. And also, uh, there's going to be a release of a film by Shinya Tsukamoto called uh, Gemini. And um, it's adapted by uh, from an Edogawa Rampo short story called The Twins. And it's a historical horror movie set in the Meiji period. Um, and uh, lots of sibling rivalry and uh, murder involved. And actually, Gemini was uh, shown at the Vancouver International Film Festival in 1999 alongside Ring, Ring 2, Shikoku, and Audition which is a nice segue into the uh, movie we're going to talk about. All right. So um, like I mentioned in the beginning, the film that we're covering today is Audition. Why don't you start, as usual, Jason, with giving us a plot summary of the film Audition? Okay. So uh, Audition is a 1999 film based on a novel by Ryu Murakami and directed by Takashi Miki. The story concerns a man looking for love. Following the death of his wife, Ryoko, documentary producer Shigeharu Aoyama has raised his son, Shigehiko, alone. The two live happily enough together, but when his son suggests that he should remarry, Aoyama decides that it's time to look for a new wife. His friend, Yasuhisa Yasuhisa Yoshikawa, a film producer, suggests the perfect way to meet women, an audition for the part of a female lead in a drama that will likely not get made. Despite some misgivings, Aoyama agrees to the scheme and a casting call's held that attracts many applicants. Ayama discovers amidst them all an ex-ballerina named Asami, and falls head over heels in love with her. After a few dates, it is clear that Aoyama is increasingly infatuated with her shy and fragile nature, as well as her beauty. When he asks her to accompany him on a romantic weekend, and Asami disappears, things take a dark and disturbing turn, and as he searches for Asami, Aoyama discovers discovers that there is a dark side to her he could never have imagined all right uh that was great thank you uh, jason so uh from what i understand uh, you've written a review about this and in the review you say in in your website and in the review you said that you've uh read the novel by ryu murakami and since i haven't why don't you uh tell us what do you th- what did you think of the novel and how do you think it compares with the film well i have to uh, say that review is like from nearly a decade ago and I <laughs> read the novel just uh, around the time I wrote the review and I've forgotten many details about it but from what I can remember is it follows uh, uh, the film follows the novel very closely yeah I'd be curious to read this novel because I, I haven't and I couldn't I couldn't find it in my local library but I've read other uh, Ryu Murakami stuff yes coin locker babies and piercing and in the miso soup so four of his novels are in my local librarians i read them all and i struggled to remember much about them 
Yeah, I've 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 mostly uh, I've mostly got my hands in his uh, couple of collections of short stories, like um, I remember there was one called Tasteless Japan or something like that. Oh, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, um, I don't remember exactly the title of that collection, but um, I, I I thought he was a very talented writer, and and I can sort of see the themes that are in audition and also uh, those other stories. I get the impression that the 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 way at least in, in the work that I uh, that I that I've read, uh, his treatment of feminism and other social uh, social critiques of Japanese society are a little bit more nuanced in his writing than what I. Than what I gather from audition, but we might. I don't know if if that's true for the if that holds true for also for the novel audition. So we can we can get into that. But I'm I I suspect that I would enjoy it if I could get my hands on the novel. And I he's I think his his writing style, at least the translations that I read, are very accessible to Western viewers. That's not always true for Japanese authors. Sometimes it can be a little bit like, for instance, um, Yasunari Kawabata, which is also a Nobel Prize winner, uh, an excellent author, but he's not very accessible to Western viewers. He's he's uh, he's a very, for lack of a better uh, adjective, a Japanese writer. Do you find like um, it's too dense to get into? Uh, not necessarily dense, but it's a, a different structure. For example. Uh, in the West, we're used with the Aristotelian form of storytelling, where there is a rising action, a climax, then a falling action. But traditional Japanese storytelling does not necessarily take that form. It's more, it's more level. It's more descriptive. More, uh, I think someone uh, in one criti- critical work that I've read, someone used the term mono no aware, and which I think roughly translates to the state, the state of being, or the state of things, or the beauty of things, and that's. That fits very uh, deeply into Kawabata's um, style of writing, and a lot of traditional Japanese writers. But I think more, maybe more modern Japanese writer have kind of adopted the Western convention, at least a little bit, or maybe a, a lot of them, like someone like Haruki Murakami, for instance, who shares the last name with Ryu Murakami, but I don't think they're related at all. Um, have kind of mixed the two in a very clever way, where they sort of adopt certain Japanese. Uh, uh, styles, but present them in a way that are very accessible to Westerns. And not that they have to, I'm just, as a Western reader, I'm a very appreciative of that coincidentally, but I'm not saying that Japanese writers have to adopt that or else we won't read them. I mean, they they can do whatever you know they think it works best for their stories. But I think Rumor Academy, to, to put a cap on this topic, is 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 worth reading is very accessible to western readers and I'm I'm probably going to try to seek out I already requested the novel Piercing I haven't read that um, hmm. from the library because that was available and if I can get my hands on editions I'm going to try to read that one as well. Okay. Okay, so so then uh when was the first time that you saw that and what did you think the what did you think when you first saw it? I think the first time that I saw it was around uh the time of the review, so that would have been 2011. Although the DVD edition I've got from earlier, so it's possible I saw it before then. Um, I went into it blind, I think, from what I understood of Takashi Miki, and that was my first. Uh, that was the first film of his that I actually watched. Um, I was much more uh, aware of his gangster films before um, viewing this. I had no idea about the ending, just that it had a massive impact on viewers, and uh, yeah, I was really shocked by the ending uh like many people because like the first half of the film is really subdued yes uh i i would agree with that uh there's a a real 180 that happens uh, at certain point in the film 
and the build is there if you pay attention to it but you know as a as if you were expecting a more conventional horror film structure it doesn't it doesn't go quite as as you would expect mm. um it's so, like so, go ahead sorry sorry yeah it's like two totally different films in a way yes although i think they work it is like two different films but i think they work they work well together uh, absolutely the, the synergies there uh, yeah, so my story with the film is quite similar to yours. I think I've I've, I'm, I've seen it. I might have seen it a little earlier than that. I I I don't remember exactly when, but I was in high school, so that was then before 2010. I remember seeing it with uh, a couple of friends, and it was not the first. Surprisingly, was not the first Mika film that I seen at the time. I had seen Gozu, which is a completely off the rails <laughs> film, and I it did not. It's um I remember there's, a, yeah, it's oh it's 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 a very bizarre film. Right, yeah. Actually, I did see, I saw Audition, like, Gozu was in UK cinemas thanks to Tartan, and that was one of my, one of my most memorable cinematic experiences, because after the opening 10 minutes, it meanders along with, yes. like, um, surreal, low-key comedy, and, like, half the audience walked out before the final 30 minutes, which is just operatic levels of silliness. And um, I'm sure, I, like that would have been about 2006 or so. And I would, I'm sure, I watched Audition before then. Okay. Uh, yeah. So sorry. That, to interrupt. No, it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. So so that sort of. But at the time when I watched Audition, I had no idea that it was the same director. I wasn't. Um, Gozu. It was introduced to me as a completely gonzo, off the rails Japanese film, and I watched it, uh, not enjoying it at all. But it was just so bizarre that it kept me from watching. And I remember very little of it. I remember uh, one scene that I remember particularly, and I think it's from Gozu because a lot of these uh, Mikia films kind of blend in together. Sometimes is a man coming out of a woman, uh, of a woman's <laughs> private parts. Uh, yes, like at the very end. Yes, and and uh, yes, and and you know, um, cow people with cow heads and someone drinking breast milk from a woman. I think it's also in the same film. Um, yeah. So I remember, and I think maybe my initial bad experience with with Gozu was why I've maybe been a little bit reticent to accept Mika's films in general. Perhaps had I started with Edition instead of Gozu, I might have. Uh, uh, I might have been more tolerant of his style, but that's a different topic. But when I saw Audition, I was uh, I had already watched several Japanese horror films, including The Ring uh, and Who On, and I was expecting something along those lines. And I was a little bit disappointed on, in that respect. But I also enjoyed the quite the the drama in it. At the time, I, I I think now if you ask me, I would say it is a horror film. But at the time, I would say no, no, this is not a horror film. This is a a drama slash revenge thriller. Uh, and maybe we can talk about that. But so my point is that I did enjoy the film, but it was I was also sort of disappointed that it wasn't what I was quite expecting at the time. Later on, on subsequent reviewers knowing exactly what was full on, I was able to appreciate. Uh, some of the not only the social criticism of Japanese society that is present in uh, in um, audition, some of the feminist critiques that is present in audition, and maybe present in uh, more likely present in the underlying uh, novel that that audition is based on. That's my theory on it. And also later on, maybe starting to become a little bit skeptical of the feminist uh, critics. That I think maybe the praise of feminism in the film might be a little bit overblown. Uh, and maybe it's 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 more uh, uh, osmosis from the novel than actually Mike inserting 
undermining it in the film and maybe even going as far as to maybe undermining it a little bit of, of the film in the film. Uh, and then I can ex- elaborate on that later. Uh, and then going back to appreciating the film again. And so my 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 relationship with it is has been um, very up and down, very 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 swingy. But overall, I I think I'm very positive on it. And I uh, and I, I really think it showcases at least uh, uh, Mika's talent as a, a technical as a technical as a very um, good technical director and building the suspense and building the drama throughout the film. Okay, I rambled there a little bit. Sorry, but I hope that made sense. No, no, it did make sense. Um, like uh, in terms of like um, feminist interpretations, I don't think it's like um, uh, to, how to put it into words. Um, it's not like uh, a, a conscious thrust. It's more part and parcel of having Asami as a female turning the tables on Aoyama. Like the film is informed from his perspective, and his perspective is that of an older male, and so, um, and also it's a horror film as well, and so when uh, she turns the tables and she reverses the roles, it does gain that feminist uh, criticism. And I, I would maybe step it back a bit that I think the most poignant feminist criticism happens in the first part, or maybe even the first two thirds of the film. And I think that final part maybe even undercuts it a little bit, or at least turns it uh, by its by its exploitative nature, turns it maybe a little bit of into a caricature of feminism. It's really strong in the first part in showing how um, misogynistic attitudes are present. And how uh, it can be passed uh, from one person to the next. So um, the the relationship between Aoyama and his son, uh, the son is effectively learning from his father to treat women in um offhanded way. Uh, he regards them as uh, cleaners, caretakers, cooks, and he shies away from um, women because they're too complex yeah um and there's also like the scene with aoyama and um yoshikawa where like as two guys who are middle-aged uh they look at younger women and they're threatened by them uh in the the scene in the hotel where they're having drinks and there's a noisy group of um women they just are ladies they're just having a good time but like like a lot of older men (laughs) who are threatened uh, they they cast derogatory remarks at them and um, uh, like link it into the future of Japan. So there's also touching upon um, like the falling birth rate and issues like that, and um, how uh, modern women are breaking free of like traditional molds. Um, and the whole audition process is looking for a woman who adheres to those traditional molds, which is where Asami steps in and she assumes uh like that behavior although it's um it turns out to be a bit of a trap yeah so like you mentioned in that scene at the bar they there's a very clear reference to reference to the good old days right uh that mm-hmm. Oyama's friend seems to miss uh particular which particularly related to women's behavior women's place in society although i would argue that japan is still a pretty patriarch patriarchal society even today uh, and things may not have changed as much as the film suggests or s- suggested at the time. Yeah, it's it's the griping of middle-aged and old guys who are 
who are like struggling to keep up with the times. And uh, yeah, I think um, Japan is like slow to change. I think that's a fair comment. Absolutely. Uh, and what I like uh, about the most about, especially the first part of the film, uh, and something that you already hinted at, is that Aoyama is not a monster. He's not a misogynist. He's not a sexist. He's not a. He, he doesn't treat women terribly. And I think that's that's a very important point of this film is the the, the sort of the institutionalization and the the ses- the sexism is so deeply entrenched into traditions and mores and behaviors that it doesn't take someone to be to be terrible to you know like abuse women and and you know use violence against them it's just there is what sounds what something that seems very normal behavior is or something that seems a very reasonable behavior actually has that institutional institutional sex, sexism uh, into it uh, to to the core like embedded to its core and like I think this film does a great job, and maybe maybe this is from the novel. I don't know. Uh, feel free to correct me on that. Uh, it um, exposing that aspect of society. And I appreciate that more. I think the film would be very uh, much much uh, would have a much lesser impact if Ayama was a monster, if he was outright abusive and outright exploitative of um, what's the name of the um, Asami Asami. Yes, thank you. Uh, if he was outright exploitative and outright rude to her and outright you know. Um, uh, forthcoming about uh, being only interested in sex or being only interested in in uh, in taking advantage of her but he isn't and that sounds on the surface that sounds like a very noble thing but the sexism is inherent inherently present in that uh surface nobility that he exhibits yeah he takes on a condescending uh paternalism uh like asami plays up uh naivety and childishness and he responds to it very favorably. And he he has no problem objectifying women. But you see his relationship with his son and Yoshikawa. And it's like he's an easygoing, nice guy. And um, he treats he seems to treat people with respect. And um, it's, there's a dream sequence during the torture scene where you, you get a cycle of... Um, it seems like you get an honest uh, look at how he views women. Like earlier in the film, he seems to have difficulty understanding women like he the secretary approaches him and he's quite dismissive of her ignores her and um you later find out that um he's had an affair with her and that, that's quite obvious from their first interaction like you don't have to wait yeah till that scene. She's, it's, it's... she's looking meaningfully at him yeah, yeah and yeah. um then it's revealed um and and also like when he's with his housekeeper he uh, he blithely ignores her as well, and even though she seems to want to have a meaningful conversation with him, so he, he does seem to have trouble uh, dealing with women as a as as an equal human being. Yeah, and it's very subtle. It doesn't you, you could you there's an amb- sorry to to jump in, but the amb- there's an ambiguity there, so you can't say for sure that that's the case. But just like the subtle. Uh, hints in his body language and in his dialogues seem, seem to indicate that what you said that he has trouble dealing with women as equal human beings yeah he's much more at ease with male characters and like that's that's a sign of his loneliness but the way he deals with his loneliness is to objectify women to look for a woman who fulfills his criteria of what is uh, an ideal femininity and um and that proves to be his downfall because that allows Asami to um to, to blind him or well, he's blinded he's blinded by his own 
his own um, sort of misogyny, I guess. All he's doing is perpetuating um, what he's learned. And that leads him to get tricked. Absolutely. However, um, well, let me let me add a little bit to to what you said, and I, I find it very poignant that what what really attracted to Asami while reading all those resumes, all those uh, CVs, whatever they were, uh, the application forms and essays, was mm. that she is essentially a damsel in distress, and he saw himself as a savior. I mean, and even in their few dates that we see on screen, he takes that role, takes her, don't worry, uh, you'll eventually learn to live with it, you'll eventually learn to enjoy life. And he's trying to to slowly hint that he's her salvation, in a sense. Yeah, he takes on a, a father figure yes. um, aspect. Yeah, and there are so many like subtle hints that just kind of, uh, like uh, I already mentioned this, so I'm repeating myself, but that, that hint to what kind of person he might have been with his wife, but they never give you an exact answer. Like, for instance, there's a scene which uh, uh, when they eat uh, in the beginning of the film when he and his son are eating dinner for the first time, or at least the first time that we see, and like uh, the son says... Uh, oh, dad, uh, it's your turn tonight to do the dishes. And the dad says, ah, okay. So I, like that may mean nothing, but for some reason that tells me that while his wife was alive, neither of them ever did the dishes. Mm. It's just it's just they had to come up with a system after she died because they didn't know what to do. So they said, okay, we'll take turns or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that could just be like, that doesn't necessarily mean that, but I kind of feel like there, that's an intentional part on Mika's or 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 the novel, if that's in the novel, I keep repeating this, for for like, you know, just giving you hints of what kind of person he is, but also leaving that that uh, little ambiguity, which I, I really love um, in the in his character. And the character mm. of old man and even his son to a certain degree. Mm. Yeah, his son replicates that behavior and it shows you how one generation can pick up something from the next generation or from the previous generation yes um and then to to kind of go in a little bit up opposite direction and kind of uh point out why i think the feminism of the first part it undermined in the end because you can tell you can tell from the film but you can also tell from Mika's interview, I think he stated there explicit he stated this explicitly, or other people have said for him, he was really excited to get to that final part. He I think in one interview, either him or one of the actors says that he was really he had a lot of fun filming that scene. Um Yeah, I think uh Ihe Sheena, like um he kept wanting her to do various takes on throwing the foot at the screen door. Yeah, and I think he was so eager to get to the exploitation part of the film that I don't think he took enough time to solidify Asami's motivation in the film. Because if you really examine it, first of all, we can make the argument that he didn't really deserve his fate in the end, no matter uh, no matter how um, uh, you know, no matter his you know uh, place in like the societal his position in this in uh, Japan's societal patriarchy. You can make that argument, but that's I'm not going to do that because the film is, is it's that meant to be a symbol, uh, like a symbol of of uh, women's revenge on male oppression. So I'm not. That's not what bothers me. But what bothers me is that no matter what kind of person Aoyama had been, the same thing would have happened to him anyway in the end. Because we get we get the, and I think this is from what I've read. This is uh, fleshed out more in the novel, and I think that might be the difference. Is that. 
um, Asami is a serial killer, right? She's been going killing men left and right, even though she actually kills a woman, which I'm not sure why that is in the film uh, as well. But is that? did you get that interpretation from the film as well? So yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, rewatching the film uh, for this podcast, when you when you listen to her lines, like uh, it, it, there's a there's a general tone of I've heard it all before. I've and um, the way she tortures Ariyama, she's very well practiced. So it seems exactly. like she's done it. She's done it previously, and um, like the film, like the first part of the film is like the perfect romance, and it seems like fate that they've met. And um, I think. That was what I took away from my uh, first couple of viewings, and then actually concentrating on the dialogue during that torture scene made me think of Asami uh, as an avenging figure. Yes, uh, but that, that's why that's that's why I think that it kind of it not only undermines itself, but it turns into a sort of a caricature of feminism, or, or like the 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 false impression that some have that some people have. That feminism means women hate all men, which is absolutely not true. It's 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 a it's a caricature of what feminism really is. But I think the film kind of maybe unintentionally embraces that in the end by virtue of what I said that no matter who or why or for what in what circumstances some men crossed paths with Asami, they would have ended up. The film strongly implies that the same thing would have happened. Uh, maybe successfully instead of her failing to do it actually in the end because of her son coming in at the at just at his son coming in at the right time. So I I don't know why that bothers me. I think the torture scene itself is instrumental in contextualizing the first part of the film because if if the torture scene didn't exist, you might as well really take the first part as a as a really romantic film, which would be completely useless. So you need the torture scene, but just the way it gets there, the suddenness, and maybe the lack of development. Uh, of Asami's character kind of I think just doesn't qu- doesn't quite land or or maybe takes uh, the the feminist part maybe in a direction that I'm not quite comfortable with or I'm not doesn't drive it home as I as I would have liked to as as a, in the seriousness that it does on the first part of the film do, do you think that's down to the structure of the film like when you have the torture scene, there's a, like a 10 minute dream sequence where you get all of the parts that were edited out of the conversations. And um, that was a deliberate technique to lull us into a false sense of security and to put us in Aoyama's sort of mindset where he's not taking seriously Asami. But also, like at the hotel, there's a scene where um, he wakes up from the nightmare. Do you think that's like. Um, did that, did that genuinely happen? And if so, um, does that help cement certain aspects of a character, such as uh, neediness, which could turn dangerous? I think that too, because a lot of those scenes are about Aoyama and very little about Asami. And in fact, like uh, Asami is reduced to an archetype of the molested young girl. But yeah, she fits into like the vengeful uh, female uh, in Asian horror with her long hair and... Like she's she's been violated and objectified due to her sex. Exactly, and and to that degree, you can't fold the film because it is meant to be from Ayama's perspective. But I'm criticizing it, but I don't necessarily. If I was writing it, I I, I wouldn't know how to fix it. So that's maybe unfair on my part. But I, I do think you're right. I think had that scene maybe better contextualized Asami's character in the story and give her a slightly more solid motivation from uh, for her final act of revenge whether that is we can talk about whether that is real or whether uh, i've read certain reviews that have interpreted that as being in 
Oh, wait, what's sorry? I'm 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 kind of blank on the name. What's the name of the main character again? Aoyama. Oh, Ayama. Uh, I I almost said Aosama, so I'm kind of blending the two uh, together. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so some people have interpreted that as being a manifestation of his guilt and not something that ha- really happens, which is a possibility, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I th- I feel like if that whole 10-minute or 15-minute dream sequence had maybe fleshed out her personality a little bit more and given her uh, a better motive for her final act, I think it would have landed better. And again, I'm being critical, uh, maybe just to drive off a point, but I'm still I still really enjoy how the final scene is done. I think it's still a very a very satisfying ending to 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 this horror film. I'm just saying, if we only focus on the feminist interpretation, I think that part doesn't quite work as well, in my opinion. Let's not say it's a bad ending to the film. Yeah, it's 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 a really complicated film. But like you said, Ariyama is not a monster. Uh, he's he's like he could be an average guy i suppose uh and he he's has his views informed by the society he's grown up in and that's the point he is an average guy and that's why that's what's wrong with him and that's yeah he's he's he is a a mirror or a a representation of a larger problem in japanese society and and in worldwide society japan is not alone in this problem certainly not no no they had the conversation between him and yoshikawa uh, at the hotel, like I've heard it in my own personal life, and uh, yeah, it just comes with age and insecurity. Yeah, I think most males who have been at a bar at one point or another, in at least in the West, have heard or been part of a similar conversation, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Mm. And uh, yeah, and uh, Asami is a, a victim of this society directly um, uh, with the abuse that she's had, and. Um, Again, you, you do feel like you, you, she's not a complete monster because you do sympathize with her. Absolutely. Yeah, you do. You do. I just wish that part was a little fleshed out. But yes, if you, uh, if you really break down and analyze the film, it does get the point across that she has suffered. Yeah, it's like this is because it's from Ariyama's perspective, there's yes. a lot that's cut out. And so it, it can feel like the, the foundations of Asami's character um, aren't firm, but that's like the experience he's going through. Yeah, and maybe, and again, that doesn't solve my problem with the film, my issue that I have with it. But it is also possible that it is this un, this discomfort or this this uh, disconnection that I have from the first part of the that some other people might have too. Maybe, hopefully, I'm not alone. But maybe that's a feature and not a ba- not a bug. Maybe. Maybe that's part of the complexity of the film, and maybe uh, it's part of the mixed feelings that it should make you feel. That you know, um, to put to put a a, a kind of learning moment to attach a learning moment to it. It's you know, if we don't change as a society, what happens if we push some people too far might not necessarily make sense and might not seem justified, but it still might happen because people are not necessarily rational beings and may just snap at any moment. Yeah, yeah. In interviews, Mike said, "Like, what's scarier than, uh, like, than human nature? Nothing scarier than human nature." And he uses violence to display that. It had to be accentuated to show, like, um, how terrifying it can be. How terrifying violence is. It is a very complex film, and and the fact that it kind of makes you want to think about it and makes you want to take each you know scene and break it down and see how it fits into the whole. I think it's is a true testament to Mika's talent. Uh, mm. In this case, yeah, it, this 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 film will remain far more relevant as long as there are differences between men and women. 
uh, than like ninety percent of horror movies made. Yeah. Do you uh, do you would you say this is Mika's best film? The precision with which he directs everything, like he makes like the perfect love story at the start, and it feels like genuine and uh, honest, and <laughs> Aoyama's sort of happiness and joy. And also the blind spots that um, being in a patriarchal society and objectifying women creates, you know, those are perfectly engineered to um, uh, lead into the horror, uh, the horror part of the movie. And um, that precision you don't see in many other of his movies. And I, and I think because it's so complex a film, uh, there's so many different readings, you can watch it over and over again. Yeah, I think it's one that has like all the themes, the story, and the direction to be his best. Yes, and I would agree with that. Although I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't take my word for granted because I have this bias against him, uh, mostly because I do think he relies too heavily on the exploitative. Uh, as yeah. I mentioned, uh, that I think he's he has too much fun with that, and maybe his uh, the critical part of him that makes him a great director maybe is suspended a little bit while he has fun creating all those gonzo effects and and bizarre images on screen. Yeah, like out of all of his films, there are some that are more enjoyable, but this one um, is very meaningful. Absolutely. Okay, so we did hint into the final sequence, the final 20, film, 20 minutes of the film being a fantasy uh, and being a, either just a dream or a manifestation of Ayama's guilt or something else. What, what do you think of that? The final 20 minutes, it's like he enters, like he, uh, Aoyama and Asami have this mental connection and they enter this dream space and it's like the first time that they're actually honest with each other and you see all the, the um, bits of the conversations that were omitted in the past uh, with the noticeable edits those were initially to be part of the film so they weren't they weren't intended to be part of a dream sequences but they were later changed to be part of a dream sequence is that what you're saying i don't know the sequence of events but they um Ihe Shina and um, Ryo Ishibashi would have long winding conversations and when you when you watch the conversations in the film you can see uh, that there are noticeable edits bits that are taken out and I think that you know it's deliberately positioned in a dream sequence so there's like a final like a final confrontation with their ugly behavior um, the dishonesty that they have so do you think the dream sequences are recollections of in the world of the film are recollections of something that happened or is it just a, a projection of of him furthering uh, Asami into the role of uh, of someone who needs to be protected and, and saved no this is like th that's that's the first part that she needs to be saved this is like from his subconscious like you forgot these bits <laughs> so you're in danger you forgot these bits like try and remember and um like like, like when you when you make a connection, like uh, a friendship or a relationship of uh, like a deep relationship, it's kind of like you can like almost second guess, uh, no, not second guess. You you understand a person. You you'll have like a premonition that oh someone's going to contact me, or you'll contact someone and oh I was expecting a call. And I feel like um like that space that that human connection is what that film goes into, and uh, like. This is, 
Aoyama entering um, Asami's uh, mind and seeing how complicated she actually is, considering um, you know, her reality. Of course, it could be interpreted as this is all of his fears bursting out, like he's heard the story of the the tongue that's been cut out, the ear and the three fingers, and that's what he's imagining. But we've actually seen it uh, earlier on in the film. Yeah, well, well, I think if we if we take it to be, if we take this film to contain no supernatural elements, and it's it's a realistic story or something that could potentially happen in the real world, then the, the shots that we get initially in her apartment cannot be real because it's just too. Ill, I don't know what word to use, but there's just someone just sitting for days. Uh, with her hand bent down and her hair over her face, waiting for a phone in an apartment with no fur- furniture doesn't seem yeah. like a real thing. So that has to be maybe a, an after-the-fact projection of someone's mind, at least according to me, uh, in my opinion. So it's like, ah, she's she's clearly waiting for me. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. Like, like in his in his that could be that could be another angle to the feminist thing in the beginning of the film in his mind she has nothing better to do of, in her life but just wait for him but she's like a crocodile lurking beneath the surface if she's like practicing killing off people Ex- yeah exactly well if, if that's true if that's not also another dream or another extension of his imagination one way which i don't think this was intended and i think mika has has uh, publicly uh, denounced this interpretation. He said that the what happens in the end is real. She's really killing him. She's really cutting off his his leg and whatnot. But I do appreciate. I do think that the the idea that nothing that happens in the end is real. That she's just another normal shy girl uh, trying to make do in a in a patriarchal society. But that uh, Aoyama has a, a a final moment of not not a final moment of of understanding but like of guilt that he cannot imagine he cannot imagine the world changing instead he can only envision it envision it in an explosion of violence to deal with you know the injustice that his you know that that sort of traditional mentality that he's part of um, has caused it's 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 a very it's a very common common uh, motif in in literature uh starting all the way back from medea uh, and you know other others. I don't know if you if you're familiar with the Greek play. No, I'm not familiar with Medea. Yeah, it's essentially uh, 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 Medea is a is a queen, uh, the wife of Jason. And when Jason, oh, uh, doesn't she kill their children? Yes. So when Jason announces that he'll leave her for for another younger princess, she kills the princess and she kills her two uh, her two children as an act of revenge. And actually, I'd say that audition is a loose remake of Medea from a certain perspective, all the way all the way to to you know like John Updike's a store short story AMP, which is it's very poignant. It's very also deals with the same. Uh, issue with uh, re- uh, you know rehashing the motif of men being afraid of women's sexuality, hmm. uh, because everything that happens, whether real or imagined, is happens immediately after they consummate their relationship. Yeah, like that's a strange scene in itself. It's like when you first watch uh, the scene in the hotel when um, they get into the clinch in the bed. It's like it's an immediate cut to um, Aoyama uh, alone, and it felt like he was drugged. Yeah, when he um, when he answers the phone. Yeah, he's so groggy. Yeah, I, I I thought I thought of the same thing, and again, it's it's the same thing. It's we're not certain that that's the case, but 
there's a strong reason to believe that it is the case. And then you get that scene in the dream sequence where he and Asami have that sort of heart-to-heart in the hotel room. And yeah. Um, like, I, I like Mike's reading of the film, which is that it's a romance of these two desperately lost souls who are, like, really lonely. And they've made that connection. And, like... The way they ex- the way they see the world and express themselves is very different. So, like uh, Aoyama is that traditional patriarchal figure, whereas Asami's like her personality has been warped. So, violence and love are the same thing. And like she wants so much love that she's willing to debilitate her partners. Oh, well, but uh, I thought mm, I, I'm I'm not sure I buy that interpretation because the way I think the film presented is. She was setting that trap from the beginning. She wasn't really trying to get to know him or... So she's like the crocodile lurking underneath the surface of the water. Exactly, yeah. It seems it seems that she was just waiting for the right moment. It's not that, you know, she was, you know, planning things out. It was just when the time when the time was right, she jumped and did, did what presumably she was doing with all the men in her life after a point. And also, was she trying... Let me let me think. Do you think she was trying to kill him in the end, or do you think she was just trying to to put him in a bag like he was doing with with that other guy? In, in the, because that that was part of his dream, right? Yeah, that he, he like how he would know about the bag is anyone's guess. But um, obviously, hearing like we see the bag early on in the film before he hears about the mutilated uh, bar owner and um, the disappeared um, music executive. Perhaps that's his imagination, and that's what he's anticipating for himself. Yeah, I mean that, that that that's entirely possible. But again, my my understanding, which is where I disagree with Mika a little bit from from your statement, is that she wasn't. She was just seeking revenge, not not love or companionship. Even 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 if in a twisted way, um, I have a hard time seeing that at the final scene. I think it loops back to what we were talking about earlier, which is during the torture scene. Like, everything's so practiced, and she's so confident doing it. Yeah. Like, it's a routine she's done before. Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe her her understanding of love is uh, the satisfaction that she gets from performing those acts and, and doing that act of revenge, I guess. Yeah, the, like, the physical attention that she got was always negative, and um, it linked... It was linked with pain, uh, as I think it was her stepfather, uh, Renji Shibashi's character. Yeah. And again, that's all from the dream sequence. We are not certain that any of that is true, although I think it's more likely that it is true than not. But I, I, I do believe there's a supernatural element to it. Like, the, you do get um, sequences where Aoyama's uh, dead wife is sort of like gazing upon him, sort of like warning him at points. Yes, yeah. he does seem to get premonitions about bad things. Yeah, which adds a, another layer of complexity, I think, um, uh, because you know, if she she's a woman, she's probably uh, has been subjected to his prejudices and his uh, objectification already, uh, and the fact that she still wants to warn him, um, I think, adds a, an extra layer of complexity in the film. Yeah, I suppose it, it's like the like his desperation for love is. Um, to replace uh, like a great amount of love that he had um, experienced with her. Yeah. Also, um, one thing that I, I kind of uh, 
want to clear up and also get your thoughts on because I saw this on I, I read a bunch of reviews and um, one thing that I think a lot of people missed about the film is that the and this was present in a lot of reviews that I read was that the audition was not fake the producer had all intentions to make the film if there was funding so I just I just is that am I am I I'm not wrong in that right no that was my uh, interpretation as well that they uh, repurposed a documentary that Ariyama had worked on and that there was a slight chance it would be made he was looking for investors and like they they were actually holding scripts exactly so yeah. like the process was underway I, I can't imagine that anybody would actually just hold a fake audition and, yeah. and risk their job no exactly and I think and even I think that goes back to the the our our you know assessment that that adds to the complexity of the film that Aoyama is not a monster and I think that would have been just too much into that direction to hold out an outright fake audition just for the purpose of exploiting this girl I mean the audition was real provided that they had funding for it and of course it turned out that they didn't but that's it wasn't a, a, a total ruse and I, I saw a lot of people kind of miss that part so I just kind of wanted to set the record straight on that end yeah like it's a genuine pro project they're just being predators and looking for a perfect wife candidate yeah during the process trying to hit two 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 birds with one stone i guess yeah yeah also i, I wanted to get your opinion on something when you get the radio show the radio adverts uh looking for tomorrow's heroine and you get that first shot of asami that's actually the child and not the adult yes so there's like throughout this film, there's this duality uh, with Asami, where there's like the innocent child and the abused adult. Yeah, and of course that's a that's that could be that's a stylistic choice on behalf of the director to try to uh, to juxtapose the two images and to show that Asami is still living, still uh, lives with the consequences of what happened to her as a child. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's also part of what I said earlier about you know whatever shots we get into her apartment uh, they don't seem very real they seem like they're like someone's imaginations of her and that just could be you know a, a, an after the fact projection of uh, Aoyama's mind after he's learned about Asami's uh, truth like for instance when he because that's that's the commercial the radio uh, um, song or whatever that's the ca casting call right yeah yeah, so after he's realized what he's done, he's realized that he's not going after women, but he's going after a child who has suffered, and he's just mm. uh, exploiting her because that's really what she, what he's attracted, like her past suffering is what he's attracted to. Yeah, she presents a fragile, demure person who needs to be defended. Yes, so I think I so I I think all both of those work, um, and yeah, yeah, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Okay. Yeah, it, I like that. So, yeah, it's just masterful control of the images you show on screen, just to get deeper into psychology. And um, I like this being like Mike style is um, just over the top violence, and uh, so you felt like that excess took you out of some of the critiques that could be made in terms of feminism. Yeah, and um, that also could be part of. Um um, so one of the writers, I think it's the sole writer of of uh, this film was Daisuke Tengen, which I'm not sure if that's his real name, but he was a co-writer in in, a, in several Shohei in several later Shohei Mamura films. Like, the well, he's actually his eldest son. Oh, he is. Oh, okay. 
So yeah, I don't think that's his real name then. That might be a pen name. But yeah, Daisuke Tengen actually worked with uh, Miki again on a number of different projects, like 13 Assassins. Okay. Oh yeah, I think I saw that. But the films that he wrote for, or he co-wrote for Imamura, like The Eel and Dr. Akagi, and then later Warm Water Under the Red Bridge, mm. uh, they're, they're ex- I, all three of them, especially The Eel, is, is a phenomenal film. I recommend, I recommend watching them. Um, if if you haven't already, but like that's that's one common trait that I noticed them is presenting a lot of character information with little, and I think that that also that's also present in um, in audition, and I think that might also be his infl- his contribution there. Hmm. Okay, like that's his style. So could it could be? Of course, he was only a co-writer in those Imamura, so that may be just him learning from his father. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Takashi Miki actually went to um, Shohei Imamura's film school in Yokohama and oh, okay. worked as an AD on a number of his uh, on a number of Imamura projects as well. There is some some similarity between the two, especially the the visceral. Uh, of course, Imamura is not as exploitative, is not as violent, but there is a visceral element to his uh, to his style that I think is uh, Miki certainly shares. Hmm. Yeah. And like the interest in like the lower classes of Japan and sort of the controversial aspects, and social criticism too. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, like Imamura's part. Like Imamura himself, I think, was uh, assistant director to Ozu, but he made his name in a new wave with all of these films that critiqued um, Japanese society. But uh, just to go back, Daisuke Tengen is actually Daisuke Imamura. That's his real name. So Tengen is pending. Okay. Yeah. I mean that that makes sense. Uh, I was thinking maybe he was a, an out-of-wedlock out child, and that's why he has a different name, because that sometimes happened, but I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't want to speculate. Yeah, I'm looking at the Japanese Wikipedia page. <laughs> this is Wikipedia, so <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all right. Where do you stand on the classification of this film? Do you consider it a horror film? Do you consider it a drama, a revenge thriller? How how would you what do you What do you make of it? I think it um, slips between genres. Like a lot of Asian films do this, where they have a, a, a thriller element that goes into like body horror, or like this is a multi-genre film. So it starts off with uh, like a very believable and convincing romance, and then goes into horror. So I don't, I don't want to confine it into it, any one thing. Like Miki himself says, he doesn't see it as a horror film. Uh, I think it's a combination of the two, and, and I think that's typical of a lot of his films. Yeah. Like Yakuza vampires, like Yakuza, uh, no, uh, Yakuza Apocalypse is like a horror movie with vampires and uh, comedy, uh, like, and um, Yakuza action. It's like, that's, he jumps between different genres. He's not as eager to fall into categories uh, as, as we want them to be here in the West. Like, I've noticed that a lot about South Korean cinema and Hong Kong cinema as well. They, they definitely are more comfortable about mixing genre, and that's probably stems from you know them or their storytelling originates from a different tradition than our classical Aristotelian story structures. Absolutely, yeah. Like, um, would you say like, for example, the Chaser? That's like a, a mixture of police procedural and thrillers, thriller. and even a little bit and, of horror. Yeah, yeah, and like. As a writer, we want um, sort of a, a glib 
summation something an easy label we can slap on things but in marketing people want that even more yeah and asian filmmakers uh reach into like the bag of creativity and uh grab whatever they can get to make a great story yep However, that being said, to kind of round up to something I mentioned at the beginning, from a marketing standpoint, I think this sells easily as a horror film uh, because of the structure and how it builds up to the final scene is very reminiscent of a lot of horror films. And some of the stylistic choices that that uh, that Mika makes, like the fast cuts and, and, you know, the cuts that kind of resemble jump scares in a way. Mm. Uh, and I think that's why this film, uh, I agree with you, it's not easily... Uh, put into one category in fact it is a multi-genre film but i think as a as someone who wants to market the film to a specific audience i think it's very easy to market this as a horror film that's why i think it kind of fits that categorization a little bit easier than the other categorizations uh, that that it does because for for example you might say it's a drama but horror does have drama in it and you might say it's a thriller but horror does have uh some thriller elements in it so the 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 genre, the horror genre, already is not a pure genre like, let's say, a comedy or a drama. It's already a has a mixed quality about it. So that's why I think this it's it's easier to kind of maybe put this into the horror genre than than maybe other genres. Yeah, and um, we have to remember that Omega Project was uh, the studio that uh, produced um, Ringu. Uh, yes, they they wanted a follow up film, uh, more horror films. Uh, but one without a ghost, apparently. And uh, this is the film. Yeah, so I read that. I read that they wanted kind of a, to capitalize on that success, as as studios often do. That's that's pretty expected. So what do you have any information of what happened? Why? Because this is nothing like Ringo. I think we would agree on that, right? Yes, it's nothing like Ringo. Like, Ringo is different from the novel itself. The novel is like a, a mystery and a thriller. And the supernatural elements... Uh, uh, feel like they're more downplayed whereas the film is a uh, much stronger horror experience i'm not sure why they selected audition yeah it seems that's what i'm saying seems like an odd choice to not only to if you wanted to follow up on ringo to choose audition the novel and mika because mika was not known at that at this point for making any any anything close to ringo if you look at uh Mike's filmography like he didn't he doesn't have many, like any horror titles, to his name before audition, or horror, or yeah, even later he doesn't have many horror ty- types that fit so cleanly into the horror genre. Well, there's one missed call and over your dead body, but um, yeah, I, like Mike himself, he's like a journeyman director, and in in um, interviews he says he goes with his intuition where interesting projects take him. So. It could be that, like, he was very attracted to the story or the okay. situation. He wanted to try something different. And I guess I think I think it's also that you know the mentality in Japanese studios is that maybe that's what they wanted to do, but then Mika came along and and said, "No, no, I'm not making something like Ego. I have my own ideas." In the West, he would have either been fired or his movie would have been taken out of his hands and edited to make it what the studio wanted. But I think that's not how most Japanese studios operate. I think they they will maybe take that more risks and go with the director's ideas, especially someone who who was a success up to that up to that point. 
like because Mika was not a was not at the house the, was not the household name that he is now, but he was certainly not an, an, an a complete unknown at the time. So I think maybe the studio took a took a chance of him. And again, I'm speculating. Yeah, it does seem like a chance because his first theatrical film was uh, Shinjuku Trad Society. Four years before that, he was more well known for like direct to video yakuza stories. V V Cinema, as as they were called, which is the also the namesake of the website that we review for. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, like he's making four or five different films a year, and um, he's like after Shinjuku Triad Society, he's picking up uh, bigger projects uh, like The Bird People in China, and he's given uh, freedom to do uh, what he wants. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, even even after his first theatrical release, he still he got more theatrical releases, but he still was working quite a bit into the V cinema uh, area. If I if I recall, I don't have his filmography open, but I looked it up, and I think he was still he was still producing quite a quite a few V cinema titles. And I think it was after audition that he almost went exclusively theatrical. I think audition blew up his career. Yeah, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, especially the attention from overseas festivals. Yeah, and this is another thing that one of the examples where you know the studio's risk paid off of course unlike all the previous films that we've discussed so far audition hasn't won that many awards um didn't certainly didn't win any awards in the japanese uh, academy uh didn't win any major festival awards but in terms of popular appeal i think it was very profitable for the studio i didn't look up any exclusive numbers but just from what i've read and what i've read from reviews it, i think it that's the consensus that it made a lot of money for the studio Especially from overseas um, territories, like uh, from what I read, it seems like it played in mini theaters across Japan, and not many people paid attention to it at first until, like, all of the uh, good press from like the Vancouver and Rotterdam started to filter through. Yes, absolutely, and it influenced a lot of Western directors. I think. Um... Uh, this, in terms of not only Western horror, this has influenced a lot of Western directors in many ways. This and Ringu, and I kind of hate the influence of Ringu because after Ringu, all horror films kind of feel the same, and that's part of my problem with horror films. Okay, uh, this they seem to all have gone with the same aesthetic, which I hate. But I think um, Audition has had maybe more positive influence in the revenge genre, uh, especially in the West. Mm. I, I well, it's cited as the title that inspires. Um, was it torture porn? Yes, yes, yes. Which I'm not a fan of, but you know, you can't deny its influence. Yeah, uh, it's. I suppose it shows you the quality of the film that, like, very few torture porn titles actually touch what auditions managed to achieve. Yeah, but even 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 if you, I mean, I think it's influencing sense beyond that. For instance, like a lot of films that you wouldn't think of, uh, like Get Out, for example, which I think it's a great horror film. I, especially the final thirty minutes of it, it reminds me a lot of Audition. I don't know if you've seen it recently. I saw Get Out last year for the first time. I was on a flight to Japan, so it's probably not the best uh, place to see it, but I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I think the structure of the film is very similar to Audition. Most of it is a drama with some comedic elements to it. Actually, that's the one difference. And then it just it blows up in the end. It's social commentary, slow build up. And the final thing is very close to torture porn. Is porn is a, a lot more psychological, but I think it, it 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 sort of follows the same beats as Audition. So I think that 
that, that I don't think that film would exist without audition, in my humble opinion. That's nicely spotted. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, uh, and and you know, like like even even fil- my point is that even films that are not outright torture porn, they have elements about them that I, I kind of either directly or indirectly are influenced by audition. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, so is there anything else that you think we missed or that uh, you'd like to to add to our, the discussion? Oh yeah, I'd like everybody to listen to the end theme of the of their. Um a movie like so many like Japanese horror titles like Pulse and Ringu, you get J-pop. <laughs> or, I must have. I, oh, that's like that. Just I didn't pay attention to that at all. It's like some acid jazz track, and it's really catchy. <laughs> uh, anything else? Uh, no, like watching it again and again and again for the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed the film, and I appreciated the structure. Um, like it, like I didn't like the mechanics that went into framing a scene the mise-en-scene the every line of dialogue there was not an ounce of fat and it was all for a specific purpose of building up this world and these characters and it's really complicated and so many different interpretations but it's like it's a really good film you can just keep watching it over and over again and talking about it and um yeah i really enjoyed it so uh yeah thanks for uh uh, you know, uh, suggesting we get a horror episode, and uh, yeah, I'm glad we selected audition. Yeah, and I think that's a testament. Uh, it's a testament to any mystery story or a story that relies on a twist or a reveal at the end, as this does. That you can watch it multiple times in the span of short time, and do- it doesn't feel like, oh, I already know how this is going to end, so I'm not interested anymore. Uh, at least for me, that doesn't happen with audition. I kind of. I when when I when I'm not interested in the in what's going to happen immediately next, I am uh, grabbed by by like you said by by Mika's presentation of things and and trying to catch all the details and things that actually make more sense upon a rewatch. Yeah, yeah. Watching this film over and over again, like I found so much depth to it, especially like um, experience in life and uh, learning more about sort of ha- um, misogyny and um, and like in the era of Me Too this is a very relevant film that you can put this on and you can show like how systemic uh, misogyny I, I think that's a term uh, can influence people and affect people's lives uh, and I really enjoyed like um, looking at different aspects of Asami's behaviour so she's not maybe she's not a love struck uh, woman maybe she's uh, a predator and that's really interesting to think about. Most people, including myself, after a while, the only thing that you remember about this movie is the final scene. Is that is that does does that happen to you as well? Uh, no, I, I I remember scattering at different elements. For example, like the um, the audition audition scene itself, which is really good comedy. Absolutely, uh, that's true. I kind of, I vaguely kind of remember like that. But what always, after a while, what's what's stuck, and I think that's true for many people, is that that final scene is so memorable that it kind of, it's kind of overshadows everything else. And I just want to say that's that may be true. It's a well directed scene, but don't dismiss the first part of the film because I think the meat of the social critique is there, and it's very subtle and it's very nuanced. And I think uh, it's, absolutely, it's it's worth examining it. Even though it's not as um, exciting, or I'm not sure if that's the right word, as as visceral as a is, or or as talked about. 
is talked about is the final 20 or 30 minutes of the film. But whenever anybody talks about horror movies, auditions always brought up and it's always like um, either people directly or allude to the final scene. All right. Yes. And that, uh, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Can I also just compliment John Cunningham's performance? Like I loved his uh, facial expressions during the audition scene <laughs> where, where like Aoyama is sat in front of Asami and the character, uh, the camera does that slow push in on him, which shows you like, um, his growing infatuation. And, um, John Cunningham is like sat to his side looking perplexed at how deep into the paint Aoyama has gone. Yeah. And, um, and also Asami just, you know, she wasn't a very experienced actress, but there's just something about her that like, radiates horror radiates you know like the pain that she's gone through either the pain or the 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 fear inducing atmosphere that she just has at the end yeah that ihe shina's uh i think that was like her first major performance something like that yeah yeah prior to that she was a benetton a benetton model okay and she plays it uh she plays it straight she doesn't overdo anything and i like that sort of placidity is key to many different aspects of this film because you're like like aoyama you're constantly imprinting your own impressions or aoyama's impressions are being imprinted on her absolutely and she does that so well yeah and then she turns and it's like a much more mature woman I'm unfortunately I'm not familiar familiar with her as an actress. Did she have a what was her career like after this? Are you do you happen to know? She's appeared in um a number of um horror films, splatter films by uh Yoshihiro Nishimura. And um actually one of them's available on um Amazon Prime in the UK. Um I can't remember the name of the title. I'll have to look it up. But yeah, it's mostly been uh horror films like Hell Driver. Meatball Machine Kudoko, I think, is the name that's uh, of the film that's on Amazon Prime. So, um, and she's also appeared in a Takeshi Kitano film, um, Outrage, and it was uh, a bit part. So she hasn't been very prolific. Okay, I think I think her. I mean, it's it's kind of it's unfortunate, but it kind of makes sense that she would be typecast after after something like Audition. It's it's just what happens. Yeah, she she has a noticeable role in um, Hell Driver. It's just like a two-hour zombie epic, uh, full of blood and guts. All right, so um, that was our discussion for the movie Audition, directed by Takashi Miike. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next time, we're going to talk about the movie that we were supposed to talk this week, and that is uh, uh, Ang Lee's Taiwanese film Eat, Drink, Men, Woman. Uh, before we close, is there anything that you'd like to say, uh, Jason? Anything that you'd like to plug? I suppose uh, please visit uh, our blogs and uh, V Cinema uh, Asian Movie Review website. And um, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you're probably already following Heroic Purgatory on Twitter. So uh, yeah, feel free to interact with us. Yeah, yeah, and uh, feel free to send us a message. I have a, a there is a um, a contact task form on on our website. So if you have any questions, feel free to comment on the on the post on the website if you want. Um, you know, um, whatever your thoughts are, uh, and we might even read them online if 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 there's anything that 
add something interesting to the discussion. Otherwise, I hope you all stay safe and uh, we'll see you on our next film. Um, have a good time, everyone. <laughs>